So we're in this study through these two letters. They're called books, but they're really letters. Peter is one of the earliest church leaders, and he writes them to the church around the world. They've been scattered at this point in time. We'll look at that in a few minutes. But I want you just to consider this. Uh, Today, it's so hard to get information out because we're so overloaded with it, aren't we? I mean, I'm fascinated by things that we'll talk about. This can happen in my own family. It can happen with the staff. It can happen in the church. It happens in other settings where people will literally say, I didn't know that was going on. And you're like, well, I told you, and I emailed you, and I, like, it's hard to keep track, isn't it? And, and so I say that because as hard as it is, we're in the first century, and all Peter does is write a couple of letters, and not only does the, all the church get it, we're still focusing and reading from it. That's pretty cool. And what we're going to do today is we're going to jump into the middle of this first letter. We've been looking at it. Last week, I'll only recap. I'm not going to recap the whole series so far, but last week, Peter talked in the first, or the first chapter or second chapter about the idea that Jesus is the cornerstone, the living stone, and that each one of us are considered living stones. And we said basically that we are living stones wherever we go, whatever we do. We are the church. And now Peter's going to expand on it in this portion of the letter. So we're going to say, what does that mean? What's he saying to us? So as we continue in the chapter, chapter 2, he says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... Now, I want to stop there before we get to what he urges them about because it's important you and I understand why is he even referring to them this way? What does this mean? Did it mean then? And what does it mean for us today? So if you consider it, I want to take you back to Israel's history. This is back when Israel's a nation, when David will be king. It's kind of their their highlight of where they were. At this point in time, this is Israel over here. Uh, You can't see it that clearly, but I'm hoping you see a red line down here and you see some other lines around. These are trade routes. And basically, it's trade routes from over here all the way down through Egypt, and then they're trade routes to the water inland. What it simply is showing us is that Israel was kind of in the epicenter of a crossroads. The cultures beneath them and above them needed to interact to get both economy and culture to each other, and the same way east and west had happened. And so simply what it was was God gave this nation in the middle of everything else, kind of with the idea that the people of God would be crossed over back and forth and could flavor and influence the rest of the world. You get the picture? So he made them kind of at a crossroads. Now what we know is that didn't go well. They did very badly at this piece. Now I just want to stop for a minute because we can make this mistake where we read Israel's history, and this is how we read it. Those Israelites really blew it. I would never do that. I'm better than that. I'm not like them. And the part I want to be really clear on is, yes, we are. That's our story, too. It's the story of humanity. So we don't want to read it as if to say they blew it and now we're favored. We want to read it as if to say this is human history. And I want you to even see what it leads to, because while this would be appearing what God originally designed, through Israel's disobedience, they go into different places of captivity. This is before Jesus even comes, but here they are where they were meant to be, And one time of captivity, the Assyrian one, sends them up here. You see all these different lines to different places. And their strategy when they took Israel into captivity was, let's put them in a lot of places and water it down. They'll start intermarrying with all these other cultures, and eventually they will lose a sense of who they are. They'll be forgotten. Let's just dissolve them into the sea of other culture. Now, the Babylonians, who also take another portion of Israel into captivity, put them in a particular area, still believing they'll be oppressed, but not the same strategy. 
What we know is some of those are then brought back to Israel before Jesus walks the earth, not because that was why, but by that time there are people back in Israel. The reason this is important to know is, in general, the people that were considered God's people were scattered all over. They were exiles, they were foreigners. It was not uncommon to see it this way. So even when Peter's talking about it, but I wanna show you one more picture. It's in the book of Acts. It's after Jesus has risen, and the church is beginning to form around Jerusalem. And some really good things are happening. In the midst of this, Stephen, one of the earliest disciples, begins to share with his brothers and sisters what Jesus has done. And in the course of sharing, kind of tells them, listen, you, you killed him and you shouldn't have. He's awesome and you're really bad. You blew it. I'm paraphrasing. That's a simple thing. Saul is there, who will later become Paul, and approves them stoning Stephen and killing him. We take it up in Acts 8 because it's going to get to the same picture in a different way. Saul approved their killing him, meaning Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were what? Scattered. They were left in a weird place. They ran for their lives throughout Judea and Samaria. Now we can associate being scattered with d dissolving and kind of making things not go well, dissipating the movement. That would have been what I thought would happen. Listen to what happens a few verses later. Saul began to destroy the church. In other words, the oppression gets worse. They're scattered even more. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now this is amazing in case you don't realize it. So you're persecuted, you're told that you're gonna be taken out, you scatter, and rather than it causing you to get fearful and not do anything, because of what you've experienced is so true, you can't help but talk about it. So in the scattering, what happens? It expands the church. The very move that was intended to cause dissolution and dissipation causes transformation and this huge influx of the church. The reason I want you to get this is this is how God moves. It's beautiful how he moves. And even as Peter writes this letter and calls them foreigners and those who are in exile, he's telling them something powerful about what God can do. Now, I want to come back just for a second to this idea of being foreigners and people in exile because I don't think that's easy for us to get. We're pretty comfortable. We like where we are. We like what our world is like. So, so let me take you with, with me on a trip. Uniquely in my role, I get the opportunity sometimes to, to do some global trips to see what some of our missionaries, what some of those who are serving around the world in our movement particularly are doing. This summer I had a chance to go to Bangkok. And, uh, and anytime, any of you who travel overseas know, you feel like you're a fish out of water when you're in another country usually, unless you've been there a lot of times. So on our trip, in fact, as we got, we went to Korea just as a transition, and I made the mistake of not realizing I had to do a few things before I could get back on a flight and walked into the gate and was told very clearly by multiple people, I better get out of there. Uh, and I suddenly felt like I don't know where I belong. I, I don't feel at home. It was an interesting piece. Now, let me take you to some of the missionaries I interacted with. In case you don't know, our, our group that are in Asia, there's probably about 50 of them. There are 3.8 billion people I think they're trying to reach. Sounds a little overwhelming, doesn't it? In fact, for many of our missionaries, uh, they're one person in one major city in one country that are just probably living there beginning to pray, beginning to ask God to do something as an exile and a foreigner. And they have to be very subversive even about what they're doing in a lot of the countries. 
it's really kind of wild to think about. And in case you're discouraged by that, don't be, because one of the things we have now with history in our movement is that if you look at other countries where we now have lots of churches and even national churches growing, they had somebody like these individuals 30 and 40 years ago going into the country doing what seemed to be unconquerable. Now, I don't share with that. Part of it, I want you to be encouraged, but I want you to think of something else. So I'm talking to these missionaries. By the way, most of them are from this area. Now, what do you think I have more in common with them about? Is it that we're from America or is it that we're Christians? I just want you to think about it for a minute. Because I think in the way we live today, we think more about what we have in common with people culturally and nationally than as followers of Jesus. So when Peter writes and he says, you are foreigners and exiles, it is partly speaking about their oppression, but even more, it's speaking about their commonality because they are now people of the kingdom. They are people of the king. And that's what matters more. That's what their identity is in as people of the kingdom and people of the king. And that's what God wants us to understand. I don't say this to criticize us. I say it to maybe jolt us a bit. I think sometimes it's easier to think of who we are in our comfort than who we are as followers of Jesus. And so I want us to begin to realize you and I are children of the king and people of the kingdom. You want a passport? That's what it should have on it. You want an identity? That's where it should be anchored in. And what Peter's doing is he's drawing the church from all over saying, guess what? You are children of the king and people of the kingdom. That's why you're foreigners and exiles. What does Jesus tell us about our home? He says, my kingdom's not here. It's not of here. My kingdom's of my father. And so Peter's writing to us and he's urging us, you are children of the king, you are people of the kingdom. And he's about to show us what that means and how we're to live He's gonna give us direction as a result of this, not just for people living in oppression, but for all of us who follow the king. Because by the way, in case you don't know it, just as we're living stones, the people of the king, people of the kingdom, reflect the king back to others. Basically, we're supposed to be made of reflective material. It means that we're not made to identify and elevate ourselves, we're made so that we reflect who Jesus is in everything we do. That's why I want to have more in common with my friend who's sitting in Japan bringing about the kingdom than I do with people that would espouse a culture where I live currently. Because I'm a person of the king and I happen to reside here. You with me? All right. Let's take it to where Peter goes. He says, this is it, what I want you to do. I want you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. It's an interesting thing to, to, get to talk about today because we live in this culture of what we consider kind of absolute tolerance and acceptance. And it kind of wars against this, which what he's saying to us is there are things in your life that are a mess. There are things you need to abstain from. It literally is a picture of a ship that's keeping itself from shore so it doesn't keep going in and ultimately crash and burn on the shore. It's the idea that we renounce those things that we're drawn to to destroy us. And make no mistake, there is a war to bring us down. Now I say that, we have a great mission. I love it, we're radically loving. And oftentimes we miss the second half growing together in Christ. In the same way we love to talk about how we live life together because it is messy. That's good. It means we love each other in the midst of the mess. 
But God didn't call us to sit in the mess. He didn't call us just to stay like that and go, it's all good. Just live any way you want to. It's kind of like this radical ignoring of life that we tend to do in our culture today. You see, Jesus calls us to address the mess. And make no mistake, I'm not telling you here this war going on, you can beat on your own. We know clearly from Peter, we know this from Jesus' life, we know this from him giving us, Jesus giving us the Holy Spirit. You and I need help. What this is about is a life of confession and the help of the Holy Spirit, of dependence. I've had people that ask why we regularly now use confession in part of the service. They, they think of it as more of a traditional element. That's not why we do it. We do it because confession is part of the Christian life. It's saying, God, I'm a mess and I need you. Holy Spirit, I cannot do this on my own. And make no mistake, when you read this from Peter, some of you are more self-disciplined than others and you can give a pretty good go at trying to change yourself. But guess what, is that enough? It's not. Whether you're good or bad at this, you can't fix it. So for those who are good at changing, it's a matter of saying, Lord, in my best day, I can't do this. And for those of us who go, I'm so impulsive, I'll never change, it's stop excusing that. God, I need you to help me. This war against my soul that wants my ship to come in and crash, help. In fact, it's really what Peter's giving us is a defensive posture. He's saying, you're to reflect the king and the kingdom. You wanna do that well, there has to be a defensive posture because there's a war against your soul to bring you down. You need the Holy Spirit to help you be changed and transformed. You cannot do it alone. I urge you, I implore you in the places you're living as citizens of the king, abstain from your sinful desires which wage against your soul. And please make no mistake, I'm not talking about did I watch a movie I shouldn't have, did I say something I should have. I'm talking about the depth of our soul that we have those inclinations and desires that destroy. And all of us know we do. Peter is encouraging and imploring us, you gotta deal defensively with this. Let me take you to the positive side because he gives us an offensive strategy too. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, I want you to observe a couple of things here. He's referring to pagans as the relation of the heathens, people that really don't have an ethical way of living. We tend to see this much more confusingly in our own lives. He's telling us that our lives should look different than the culture around us. The culture of the king reflects the king, and we do good and live good in a way that others doesn't make sense to them. You get that. If you're doing good things, it should be confusing to people around you. I love this because he says, even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they're going to see your good deeds. They're going to say things about you that are negative, but in the midst of it, they can't argue with what they see. That's powerful. I have to tell you, it's one of the things I long to hear as I reach out to different people, my friends that are not followers of Jesus that I know from the community, when they tell me they see someone from our church and they see something different in them that's wonderful, I go, they're reflecting the king. Oh, I'm so pumped about that. In the same way, when I hear things that sound antithetical to who we're supposed to be, it just rips me up. And make no mistake, I'm a culprit as well as one trying to live it. We've all at times lived less than, right? 
But Peter's given us a picture. On the defensive side, you need to put to death, you need to have help moving away from the things that are destructive, and you're gonna live godly in such a way, in such goodness, that even those who hate you, say bad about you, can't argue with what they see in you. Now what's crazy about this is the examples that Peter uses. I'm not gonna go through them in detail, but they're very hard in our day and age to relate to. The, the first example he uses is an emperor who's unfair and unjust. Now they had emperor, the Roman culture, especially at an emperor, they had governors and regents all over. There was a lot of injustice in what's going on. So he's writing to them in this place where there's power over them that's unfair, saying you still do good. You still, and he uses the word submit, by the way, over and over again. It's, it's hard to read. He goes on to talk about slaves with the same thing with masters. They're dealing with people unjustly watching over them and again saying, in the midst of these really horrible, powerful relationships that don't work for you, that you have to live in, you war against your soul and the things that will destroy you and you still seek to do good always. Now you have to understand, that is a hard thing to say to all of you. The last I knew, none of you are living with an emperor and none of you are in slavery right now. And we move on to other examples that still, even the way it's in the ancient world, it isn't today. But I want to take you to another facet because I think of the core of this, and I'll read what Peter says about Jesus in a minute. It's really about submission, and I think that's very hard for us in our day and age. It's interesting to me, the few verses I ever hear people cite these days about submission, they tend to be cited when whoever's or whatever group is in leadership they agree with and they think others aren't, they cite how we should submit to those in authority. And then when it's someone we don't like, we don't cite them. And, and I'm not even getting at whether that's good or bad, that's its own problem. But let me ask you a different question. We believe there's some authority of those in power over us in any culture. Which authority's higher, the government or the church? Don't answer it, just think about it. It's an interesting piece, and this is just an observation. It's not, uh, and I'm part of it too. Do you think the church has authority that people listen to much these days? Because I don't. I think we view the church as a nice influence. You know, I'm gonna consider that. Maybe that's a good idea, I'm not sure. But we hold other things up, and we tend to hold them up if they're authorities we like. Very rarely do I actually hear us talk about submission, and especially if it's something we don't agree with. And the reason I raise this is Peter is giving us a new way to think and live about submission. I think that messes all of us up in a beautiful way. Because it's interesting, he doesn't point to Jesus and say, now you get down and you do exactly what he says, and he's, I'm gonna tell you what to do, and he is but he speaks in a very unique way about Jesus. I want you just to hear what he says in giving Jesus' example to us and how we're to live, because that's the model of how we reflect. That's the model of how we discover his forgiveness. It's the model how we do good. This is what he says. To this you were called, and he's speaking about how we're to live. This is in verse 21, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What are his steps? Christ suffered for you. He continues. He talks about him not committing sin, but then he says, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now tell me that's not a very contradictory way to thinking the way we live today. Jesus submitted to the Father in the most difficult and what would be the hardest places to submit to those around. He still took it. He loved and did good. He didn't retaliate. And he sought to live in perfection for us and our benefit. By his wounds you were healed. You were like sheep. All of us have gone astray, but we're returning to him. It's an interesting piece to me in that Peter says, Jesus is our model. And Peter has authority. By the way, when he says, I urge you, that's a command in case you don't know. He's not saying, hey, you know what? If you have time, this is a good idea. He's not saying for the few of you that might really take this thing serious. Are there there some fanatics out here that really want to follow Jesus? Now for you, maybe you want to try this. He's saying every one of you who follow Jesus, who are children of the king and people of the kingdom, you're supposed to reflect his kingdom to the world around you. And you want to know how that shines brightly? It shines brightly as you deal with and war against those things that will take you out. And as you do good in every situation, even to those that are most difficult and seem most contradictory that you'd want to do it for, because you're not about having power, you're about responding to the power of God. Can you see why he says we're exiles and why we're foreigners? There's nothing around us that lives like this. And I think sometimes we need a little shake-up. And I think Peter brings that to us. He shakes up in us to live in a different way regardless of what will happen. I'll just give you one one little help. At least it, it helps me. This is how I know I'm on the right track. When there's a situation that I know and it's clear what I should do and it will be good and the hair on the back of my neck stands up going, I don't wanna do this. They don't deserve it. This is not fair. It should be different. Because guess when I like to do good? I like to do good when it's noticed, when it's reciprocated, and when it's valued. Is that the call of Peter? It's not. It's at the place where it's not reciprocated, where it's not valued, and where we actually don't have power. It is a kind of goodness that is done letting go of power. You see, God made us to reflect his light. He made us to reflect back to others who he is. We reflect it strongly when we defensively go after warring in our souls by the help of the Spirit against the things that destroy us. And we go after it when we submit to Jesus and say, I will live like him, being good to others, even when they're horrible to me, especially those in power, in an effort to live like Jesus lives because that is a citizen of another land, of the kingdom, people of the king. This goes right to what Jesus said. When Jesus was speaking to his early followers in Israel, they had no power and they were under oppression, and yet he said this, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Because very simply, God made us to reflect his light. In case you don't know it, earlier in this teaching, Jesus says, do you take a light and hide it under something? 
to hide it that people wouldn't see? No. We learned a song as a kid, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. Should have said, I'm going to let it shine. People of the king, people of the kingdom, we don't do good things because what happens back for us. We do good things because Jesus set an example that he would love and do good. And you realize that's true for us, right? We're considered enemies of God by the way we give our own messes and say, we don't want you, we want us. And we're the first ones who receive something good out of his love and grace and forgiveness. You see, and live the same way. God made us to reflect his light to a world in need. People of the king, people of the kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask uh, today, I ask that you would give us the grace that if there are ways we see ourselves in other ways as citizens of other places or other cultures or other things beyond you or ahead of you, God, just change that in us. Help us to begin to see ourselves as your people in exile, foreigners, that we would be children of the king and of the kingdom. God, extract out of us where we kind of settled for something less than that. Lord, I pray in those areas that we've settled for just being a mess, that we would begin to say, Lord, help me to go at this war that's trying to tear me down and to live in a new way, increasingly under submission to you and surrender to you. And Lord, in the same way, let us do things that are good, whether it's ever reciprocated in such a way that others will see who you are, that we will reflect your goodness. Give us opportunities, even this week, to begin to reflect you in ways that are better. And increasingly, let us see our own lives, our own passports, our own citizenship as kids of the king and of the kingdom. I pray this in your name. Amen.